0: Here in His grace, we can rise and do our duty, not in our own strength, but in His empowering. And let's read a passage that deals with one of the things that flows out of our sufficiency being in Christ, laying our gifts on the altar. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to look at the first six verses in the sermon. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and I pray that as your word is expounded that it would sanctify us, that it would draw us into uh relationship with you. We pray that you your spirit would uh, enable me to preach as I ought to preach and uh, that you would quicken the word to our hearts with faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be talking about spiritual gifts today, but not focusing so much on the discovery of our gifts, which I think you really don't need to spend much time on. You just minister in every area that God calls us to minister in. It'll become pretty obvious over a period of time what your gifts are. And I'm not uh, speaking even so much as how we should use those gifts uh, within the uh, body. Last week's sermon uh, demonstrated that our gifts are not just used within the church as an organization, but uh, they are being used beyond the walls of the church, or at least they should be. In fact, that's where uh, most of the work of the body must be happening, is beyond the walls of the church. It drives me crazy when some people think... The only way that they can do anything that is spiritual is if they have some kind of a job within the church as an organization. Now, I love it when people work within the organization. I think every member has a responsibility to contribute to the organization's work. But I think it's just important to realize that planting a tree for Indian Creek Nursery or, uh, Uh, shooting a terrorist in Iraq can be a spiritual act of service to the Lord, right? Okay, and uh, what um, we are doing in our families day by day, changing diapers, is serving the Lord uh, even with the gifts that we have. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once had a lady tell him, You know, I really believe that God has called me to the ministry. And he was a little bit taken aback, but he didn't show it. He just uh, talked to her and asked her about her family and different things. And when he found out that she had 13 children, he said with real gusto and enthusiasm, well, praise God, he's not only called you to the ministry, he's given you a congregation already. (laughs) And um, our families are our ministry in some realm, are they not? And and we need to not only be convinced of this, this really is serving the Lord. It's not just what we do in the church. It's serving the Lord. We need to convince other people of that uh, fact as well. We need to be thinking in these categories. There was a pastor who was retiring in England after 25 years of service in that church. He'd gone into the ministry rather uh, later in life. But uh, he was retiring and as he was cleaning out his bedroom to leave the manse, uh, he noticed uh, a big basket under there with five eggs in it and a thousand uh, British pounds. And he was kind of curious, puzzled by that. And he went to his wife and says, darling, what is this? I found five eggs under the, the bed and a thousand uh, pounds. And she he said, oh, well, every time you've had a bad sermon, I've put an egg in the basket. And he, he thinks to himself, man, that's pretty good. Only five bad sermons in 25 years. And he says, what about the thousand pounds? And she says, well, every time we get a dozen, I sell them. Now, I say that because if I thought that the whole work of the ministry was preaching, I'd get pretty depressed. Um, in fact, it's only a, a very small part of the work of the ministry. I just play a much smaller part in the huge drama that God is playing out where every member of His body, every believer is advancing the cause of Christ's kingdom and seeking to subdue every square inch of planet Earth underneath His feet. Now, there's a lot that could be said about using gifts for the kingdom, but far more important than that, I think, is having five prerequisites in our lives that will enable us to be effective and powerfully used. I believe if you've got these five words that we're going to try to summarize the concepts with. If you got these in your life, God will powerfully use you no matter what your spiritual gifts may be. The first prerequisite is that you need to lay yourself on the altar as a sacrifice to God every day. Now, I've put down the word crucifixion because that's a more common word that's used in the New Testament for laying our lives down before God, putting ourselves to death. We, we lay our plans and our aspirations and our desires at the foot of the cross of Christ. We say, Lord, I'm willing to abandon these. Uh, they are yours to take up or they are yours to do whatever you want with. But I want to know what do you want me to do? And laying our gifts on the altar means, Lord, I want to die to my selfish use of these and I want your resurrection power to enable me to effectively use these gifts. Look at the way that Paul begins uh, this section. It's a rather urgent plea. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Uh, Here's some other translations. I beg you. I plead with you. I appeal to you. And Paul was indicating it's not enough to have spiritual gifts uh, you can exercise spiritual gifts and yet still be a big fat zero. 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is quite clear on that. In, there, in that chapter, he says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am Nothing. Uh, I am convinced there have been times when the Lord has looked at Phil Kaiser's ministry. He's seen a very energetic Phil, but he has seen a big fat zero. And the reason was, is because I was trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the labor of the Holy Spirit. And when you do this, uh, it's the it it's, it's tragedy of the barren Christian life. And there are a lot of Christians out there who go through lives just feeling barren. They're feeling empty. Uh, Paul says it doesn't have to be that way. And Christ made it clear it doesn't have to be that way. Christ says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so this is the irony of this. It is only as we die to self that we get this resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ working through us. Our gifts must be daily laid on the altar if God is going to use them. So this is really a paradox. As we relinquish our bodies as a sacrifice to God, He uses our bodies with power. Or as Christ worded it, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. John 12, verse 24. Now, He's not talking about physical dying there. Clearly not talking about physical dying. He's talking about putting ourselves last, saying, Lord, I'm dying to my own desires, my aspirations. Let me read another example. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, uh, verses 38 through 39. And so that's what sacrifice is. It's losing your life to Christ. Remember, in the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice, a very literal animal, to the temple, it was put on the altar and it was completely burned up. That means you couldn't get it back. (laughs) Uh, Once you gave that as a sacrifice, it was irrevocably uh, given over to God. Now, what's encouraging to me about this is that it levels the playing field. Uh, At the end of the day, everybody's sacrifice, whether they bought a pigeon or a bull, is all just dust and ashes, right? It's all given up to God. And so in ourselves, we are all equalized as being a a big fat zero, right? In ourselves, Uh, that's uh, what it amounts to. And yet through Christ, it goes much, much beyond that. Richard Parker says, God doesn't call people who are qualified, He calls people who are willing, and then He qualifies them. See, God doesn't need us. (laughs) We we many times think too much of ourselves. But whether you think too much of yourself or you think too little of yourself, it's still the same problem. You're thinking of yourself rather than focusing upon the Lord working through you, right? And so, this is the issue I want to talk about. All of ourselves being burned up on the altar. Do you have daily sacrificed bodies? Uh, one radio preacher said the problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to crawl off the altar. Uh, but God wants our bodies to be on the altar to be living day by day, living for Him, not dead and inactive, nor living for ourselves, but being completely uh, out and out for the Lord. Uh, D.L. Moody uh, was not you know, that impressed with degrees I think he was given an honorary degree, but he said the only degree he was interested in was an O and O degree. Out and out for Jesus. And uh, that's what Paul wants us to be gripped with. After giving all of the truths of chapters 1 through 11, he says, Guys, with all that God has done for you, I want you to be out and out for Jesus. And that's the purpose of that, therefore... It shows the logical implications that flow from what he has talked about before. And so in commentaries, you'll see people saying this is the great hinge upon which the book of Romans turns. Uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 is the doctrine. Then chapters 12 through 16 are the practices that logically flow from that doctrine. And unless doctrine changes us, it is not doing what God intended it to do. My favorite teacher at seminary, um, John Frame, might as well give his name, uh, he gave a little mini course on why seminary is the worst way to train a, a pastor. And I agree with uh, the, the summary of his, his courses because it takes people out of the natural context of the local congregation that knows him, loves him, and, uh, and puts them into an artificial environment. Where everybody, you know, is sort of on the same uh, field. There's not a multiplicity of gifts that can be invested into his life. He's not having to invest. He's not having to learn patience with this and that. And he says what's even worse is that uh, he is being so plumb filled with knowledge that he doesn't have time to put it into practice. And it sets him up to become sterile in his knowledge. In other words, sterile meaning his knowledge is not producing anything in his life. And he says a lot of people uh, come out of seminaries uh, feeling rather dead. In fact, there was one seminary professor that Malcolm Weber told me about uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And he, he said, you know, you get these people all fired up when they first come into seminary. And five years later, a lot of them are dead. We need to get better quality uh, people into our programs. And Malcolm was saying, that's not the issue. The issue <laughs> the problem is the faulty way of training. And so, Paul's whole point is we cannot have sterile knowledge has always got to be put into, uh, into, into practice. Uh, one man likened the church to a bus. One driver, many drowsy passengers. And Paul says, no, 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 it's not a bus, it's a body. And every single part of that body needs to be used. Now, I shouldn't have to state the obvious under point C there that um, this is only for the brethren. Obviously, uh, the Lord does not receive the sacrifices of the unbeliever. He says they're an abomination to Him. And only believers have spiritual gifts they can offer up to the Lord anyway. So, He's clearly talking about believers here. But uh, point two, what I want you to notice is that the bodies of believers are important. This verse is fighting against Greek asceticism which treated the body as being unimportant. We just want to escape from this body. It's uh It's a verse that goes against pietism, which is, again, seeking to escape from the things that are around us and saying, no, your bodies are important. I don't just want your soul. I want your body. I want everything about you to be laid upon the altar of service for me. And so to me, this is a very encouraging verse that our bodies are important to the Lord. He cares what we do about our bodies. In fact, when we abuse our bodies with excessive... Uh, caffeine and alcohol and uh, other abuses, uh, laziness, we're not taking good care of God's property. And in effect, we're throwing a stone through the window of God's temple. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6:20 and following. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so what I would say is the evidence of a surrendered spirit is a dedicated body. If your body is not serving the Lord, it's unlikely your spirit is serving the Lord. Until our bodies are sacrificed to God, our bodies are going to drag us down instead of helping us in our service. Point three says it's a continuous consecration Because the sacrifice is living. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul made it very clear that it's much easier to give a dead sacrifice. You know, even unbelievers can, on occasion, give up their lives, right? They can lay their lives down uh, for their friends in the military and other places like that. And uh, believers can make that bodily sacrifice without love. And so it's much easier to die than it is to daily live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Much easier. So he says, Though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Christ indicated that it's not enough to take up your cross once. He said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So can you understand why the Reformers say that sanctification is not just a once-only thing and you're holy, you're done with it, and you can just breathe a sigh of relief and go on perfectly sanctified. No, it's an ongoing struggle throughout our lives because we're constantly on a daily basis having to say no to our flesh, having to say, body, you are going to serve the Lord. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice you. I know you don't like this, but I'm going to put you on the altar again this day because I want to please my Savior. Now He goes on and he calls it the sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. Scripture alone can define what is holy and what is not holy, right? And there are organizations that will call for your sacrifices, uh, which Scripture has not called for. And one of the things you need to be reminded of repeatedly is that your loyalty is not to a denomination. It is not to Phil Kaiser. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures define the degree to which you sacrifice. Now, God is going to call you to sacrifice on behalf of believers, on behalf of others as well. But it's got to be the Scriptures that define that. Okay, it's a holy sacrifice. Uh, Five, the sacrifice should also be acceptable to God, not just to man. Six, it is reasonable. And actually, that's an interesting word there. It could be translated. It's logical. Uh, If the sacrifice is irrational, don't do it. Sin is irrational, but holiness is not uh, irrational. And this is what cults want you to do. They want you to just turn off your brain, stop thinking and trust the leader. Trust me, you know. And the scripture says, no, from beginning to end, the Bible is rational. It's a reasonable service. It's, it's something that is, that is uh, logical. And so the Bible is our final revelation. That's the safeguard for this point. Just because we are calling you to sacrifice does not mean that it's God calling you to sacrifice. So you've got to, uh, in order to even be able to discern, when is it that I should be laying down my life? When is it that I should not? You've got to have your, 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 your body as a living sacrifice before the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that you want in order to be able to make the right decisions? Because again, there are organizations, parachurch as well as church, that will work people to death to the suffering of their family. And that's not what God calls us to do. There's a balance that He calls us to, but there are times where He calls us to really make big sacrifices, but He's going to do it and you will know that it is from Him. So that's the first word, crucifixion. Paul goes on to talk about transformation. Second word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let me briefly mention the difference between conformity and transformation. Two quite different terms. One translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's conformity. And let me point out that conformity is not enough. It's not just an issue of don't conform to the world. Obviously, we shouldn't be conforming to the world, but conformity by itself is never enough. There are some people who want to conform to the church or conform to the Bible or conform to the way Christ is doing things, but that's not the same thing as transformation. And here's maybe a word picture that might help you to see the difference. The Greek word for transformation is what we get the word metamorphosis from. It's used of a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. And so you could could get, you know, a beautiful mold that was shaped like a butterfly and get a caterpillar and smash it into the mold. And say, okay, I've got a butterfly. It's in the shape of a butterfly. What you've got is a dead caterpillar, right? It's not a butterfly. And uh, it's the same thing. When in our own strength, we're trying to push ourselves into conformity, whether it's conformity to the world or conformity to the Scriptures or anything, you've got an outward conformity, and yet you've you've not got the power of God within. Remember the Scripture that says they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. So, conformity by itself is never what Christianity is about. Christianity is about transformation, metamorphosis, the life of God changing us from the inside out. And there is nothing more wearying and uh, joyless uh, than ministry that uh, does not have this empowering of God within us. Now, here's the key to receiving this this transformation. He says this happens through the renewing of our minds. Now again, it's important to stress that godliness is not irrational. Christianity is not irrational. There are so many Christians out there that treat Christianity as as if it is. You're just making a wild leap in the dark. Okay, Nonsense. It is rational from beginning to end. In fact, if you're interested, I can tell you about a a workbook for homeschoolers that's been added uh, for how to study logic based on Gordon Clark's book on logic. And the exercises are Bible exercises. I've got a lengthy college-level course on logic that's entirely taught from the Bible. God's mind has communicated to our mind logic. So never think that that Christianity is illogical. The Greek word dokimazo here, earlier there was uh, the one for logic, but dokimazo means to examine, but examine with the idea of testing. Okay, so one commentator had find, it's to find and to follow. And all of the descriptors of this will of God indicate it's not talking about some secret will of God. It's talking about this revealed will in the Word. Okay, that's what we need to be getting uh, into our souls. It's the Bible that has the power to transform us from the inside out. And if you have never developed within yourself the habit of meditation on God's Word on a daily basis, you've got to start. You know, I've preached on this and I've exhorted you one-on-one about this, but it is a powerful tool and I liken it to an umbilical cord to the power of heaven. And so, I'm not going to deal with it because I've talked about that before, but... uh Uh, I guess what we could say is until you crucify your body, you put it on the altar, you're not going to even have the desire to meditate on God's Word. You're not going to desire to have this transformation. And so there really is a logical order in these words. There's crucifixion first. There's transformation. Then the next one is evaluation. Verse 3 indicates we should evaluate our gifts It says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, faith. He is to think soberly. So that's evaluation. And there's various parts to this evaluation. It needs to be accurate, first of all. And Paul had a very accurate perspective in view of the gifts that God had given to him. He says, I say... Through the grace given to me, he knew what he had. David Yarbrough relates a story that was told to him by his missions teacher. Um, and his missions teacher's uh, name was Herbert Jackson. When he was on the mission field, he had a car that was assigned to him that didn't start. Um, battery didn't work, but the previous guy had told him, yeah, just just give it a jump start. Let out the clutch and it'll start and it'll keep running. And he did that. And for the next two years... Uh, every time he would either leave it running or he would park it on a hill so that he could run it down the hill and get it jump started. And uh, he got seriously ill and had to come back to America. And so the replacement that he had, he was showing him around the place and he was showing him how you get this car started. Well, the new recruit said, well, let me look under the hood. He looks under the hood and tightens a wire, goes in, starts it up, starts up like no problem, you know. And so here for two years, this guy's gone through an unnecessary routine because he didn't think he had any power. And that's really a parable of the way it is with many Christians. God has given grace to them, but they don't realize it. And so they don't use it. He has given gifts to them, but they don't realize what their gifts are. And so they don't use their gifts. And so they go through daily routines to try to compensate for what they think is their lack of gifts when they've got it all along. When Paul spoke, when he ministered, when he disciplined, when he labored, he was constantly aware of the gift that God had given to him and the calling that God had upon his life. That calling, that sense of calling is really important. Even when everyone rejected him, like in Corinth, uh, his sober evaluation of his gift gave him the ability to speak with authority and boldness and perseverance. And Paul wanted every believer to gain confidence in their use of gifts, by the realization, hey, God's gifted you and you are accountable to God for how you use that gift. So people may not appreciate your gift of exhortation, but if God's given it to you, He wants you to use it and to refine it and to get better at using it. If He's given you the gift of hospitality, He wants you to use it to His honor and to His glory. And you can gain satisfaction from that. So it's not enough that the elders evaluate you. God wants you uh, to evaluate as well. And he gives two parts to this exhortation. First, avoid pride in using your gifts. Second, avoid false humility. First, avoid pride. He says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this can happen in various ways. Uh, The three common ways in which we think too highly of ourselves are gift glorification, gift projection, and gift denigration. Gift glorification, to, to glorify certain gifts can give a feeling of prestige to a person who has the gift. You know, he might think, oh, I don't, I don't want the gift that helps. I want a gift of teaching. Uh, I don't want the gift of mercy. I want a real gift, like a gift of prophecy. <clears throat> Sometimes God um, humbles our pride by the reactions that other people give to us. Uh, there was a pastor... Uh, uh, told me that their church had replaced paper towels with uh, blow dryers. And the Sunday after the replacement had happened, he found a note taped to the blower that said, please press this button for a short recorded message from your pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody obviously thought he was um, blowing hot air, and he just felt so deflated by this. Well... (laughs) It may be he was thinking too highly of himself and he needed to be deflated. So that's gift glorification. Gift projection is where maybe we're an eye or we're an ear or a finger or whatever and we're expecting everybody else to relate to the body just the way that we do it. See, Peter Wagner said, they seem to say, here's what I do and God blesses it. If you just do what I do, God will bless you in the same way. So everybody is put through the same cookie-cutter mold. You've got to do it just the way that, that I do it. And uh, that's a manifestation of pride. It's making me the measure of all things, right? A third way is through gift denigration, where a gifted person doesn't see the importance of uh, the, the gifts. Maybe it could be manifested even. He doesn't feel like he needs to be ministered to. In fact, he feels badly when other people uh, minister to him. He's a pull himself up by his bootstraps kind of a person. But what we need to realize is all gifts were given for the purpose of um, uh, of um, manifesting uh, 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 manifesting body life. Now, Paul goes to the other side of the coin. He says that we can have false humility as well. But to think soberly is God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We are... To honestly evaluate these gifts, and when we poo-poo our own giftedness, we're not thinking soberly. In fact, I did this when I when I was um, in um, my twenties. There were quite a number of people from various churches had told me, "Phil, you have gifts of pastoral ministry. You need to go into the ministry." And because I'd seen all that my dad had had to go through, I didn't want to be a pastor. And I was a shy person, and I just saw some of the sacrifices, and so I just said, no way, no way. And uh, I was not thinking soberly of the gifts that God had given to me. And it's very easy for us to do this. Either pride, on the one hand, or a false humility, which is actually a form of pride. Okay, the fourth word is assimilation. Assimilation of gifts into the body is very important. So if gifts are only exercised privately then they don't build up the body. Let me give you some examples. It's easy for a teacher to become addicted to study and to neglect the teaching of the people. Very easy. It's easy for a person with the gift of administration to love doing all of the arrangements and to be rough and tough with the people. In fact, I had one administrator tell me about 10 years ago, he said, I love the job, it's the people I can't stand. (laughs) And that's always wrong in my in my mind. Well that's a denial of verses four and five. You know what? Even a person with a gift of mercy can fall into this trap. A person with the gift of mercy has been equipped by God to feel bad when other people are hurting. He just he feels bad automatically. Uh, He feels the pain that other people and this empathy that God has given to him was designed by God to stir him up to minister to that person and help that person. But because of fear or pride or laziness or who knows what other sins, many times these people with the gift of mercy, they don't go and minister. They feel terrible about it. They might tell somebody else about it, but they don't go and minister. And so they're short circuiting their, their gift. In fact, it eats them up. Uh, inside needlessly because it's not being promoted in a productive way. Now, when I say assimilated into the body, given for the benefit of the body, we need to keep in mind what we said last week. It's uh, the local church, obviously, yes, but uh, also the bigger church. It's easy for a person with a gift of hospitality to be so busy in serving that he or she spends very little quality time with the guests. This was Martha's problem. Um, she was so busy with uh, all of the different preparations and the cleanup and whatnot that she was failing to minister to Jesus. Now, some people assume that Mary was just getting off scotch-free. She wasn't doing any uh, work. Uh, There's another passage that shows clearly that Mary is involved in hospitality and service and things like that. But Mary knows when it's time to just leave the dishes for later on. I want to spend some time with you. Okay, She has this balance in her life. And so again, we need to recognize every gift is for the building up of the body. It's not just to be done in isolation. The last word is obvious. It's implementation. Verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And I think there are latent gifts In this congregation that need to be stirred up and exercised and developed uh, more fully and they're developed through practice, but even pastors need to be exhorted and reminded about this from time to time. Paul told Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you. First Timothy 414, which implies what gifts can be neglected even by pastors. They can be neglected. Uh, again, uh, Paul says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you. That's second Timothy one verse six. Now, how we stir them up, how we implement them is important as well. And very quickly, we must not treat people like clones. Paul says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Everyone is different and we need to glory in those differences We must be faithful with what we have, not always desiring what other people have. He says, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, etc. I remember a a friend of mine uh, who was constantly discouraged in his ministry because he wanted to be a second Billy Graham and he just was not succeeding. He didn't have the gifts to be another Billy Graham. Actually, it was his father that was pushing him constantly into this. You need to do this. And he was just misplaced and it was it was sad. It was uh, almost painful to watch this guy trying to be uh, a round peg in a square hole. Uh, It just was not working. And God says, forget about it. Don't be comparing yourselves to others. Just be faithful with what you have. So that's misplaced uh, ministry. Now, we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme, say, well, I'm specialized. This is what I'm doing. i I'm not gifted for stacking chairs. Okay, now I've stacked chairs in this um, uh, place at uh, 7.30 in the morning for seven years because I think it's good for pastors to have a servant heart. And uh, I'm willing to work in whatever capacity. But what we're talking about is stretching yourself so, th- so thinly that you're not effective in what you're doing. You're getting your, your, your hands in, into everybody's pie and uh, you're not being good at what you're doing. Scripture says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And so we need to devote ourselves to the things that we're gifted, but be willing to be involved in other things that we're not gifted in as well. Um, Paul says, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so there's the enthusiasm with which you do it. And it is so easy to lose your cheerfulness and to lose your diligence and generosity because you've been mis. Placed, you know? (laughs) You're not in the place that God has uh, called you to be. There's a body, and you specifically are needed in that body for your your gifts. Uh, Our denomination has an entire presbytery that's uh, language-based. It's a Korean presbytery, and one of our Korean uh, ministers humorously tells how the gifts were used in his congregation. He said... Let me illustrate how gifts work together in a church. At our potluck last Sabbath, suppose someone dropped a plate full of kimchi on the new floor in the gym. This is how people with different gifts would respond. Gift of prophecy. That's what happens when you're not careful. (laughs) Gift of service. Oh, let me help you clean it up. Gift of teaching. The reason it fell was because it was too heavy on one side. (laughs) <laughs> uh, gift of exhortation next time maybe you should let someone else carry it <laughs> gift of giving here you can have my kimchi gift of mercy don't feel too bad it could have happened to anyone gift of administration Lucas would you get the mop so please help pick this up Janet would you uh, get him another plate <laughs> We've all been gifted differently, and so we act differently and we serve differently. And I thought that was good. Don't make others always have to do things just the way that you do it. There is variety for a purpose. And if you become imbalanced in your use of gifts, go right back to verses 1 and 2 again. Say, Lord, I'm imbalanced. I sacrifice my whole being upon the altar. Uh, I die to myself, and I want your resurrection power to be living and using these gifts through me. So, more important than what you have is that Christ is doing it through you. Uh, Point B, we should not only be faithful with what we have, but we should glory in those differences. And verses 6 through 8 gives a long list of gifts that are needed in the body. Uh, Leadership is not more important than the, the gift of service. And you might want to think about it this way. Um, when uh, there was the shooting of President Reagan uh, some years back, the country went on, you know, without a glitch. There were, there, I mean, there were some problems and troubles and things, but the country continued to function, didn't it? But when uh, the garbage collectors went on strike in Philadelphia for two weeks, the whole city uh, became a stench. Uh, there became a health hazard. Just imagine what would happen if all of the um, you know, garbage collectors weren't doing their job in the States. It would be pretty bad. So the question is, which is more important, being a president or being a garbage collector? <laughs> and really, I think you could see that there's elements, uh, aspects in which that's not a fair question. All are important. They all have, uh, they all have their their place. And we need to be uh, faithful with what we have, as well as glorying in it. In one of Ripley's Believe It or Not items, a few years ago, a plain a bar of iron is pictured and said to be worth $5. Same bar of iron is made into horseshoes, is said to be worth $50. Uh, if it's made into needles, it's worth 5000 it's made into balance springs for fine Swiss watches. It's worth 500000 I don't know how they came up with those figures, and they're probably way out of date. But the point is that uh, the raw material is not nearly so important as how it is developed. And God has given to every one of you raw material of spiritual gifts. And he wants you to exercise those and to develop those and to use those creatively uh, for his glory. And God can use the lowliest of gifts in a powerful way. Um, My favorite examples that I've probably mentioned too many times is that God used a simple jawbone of a donkey to slay thousands in Samson's hand. Uh, He used a dry old stick to part the Red Sea in Moses' hand, right? And so how significant and big and glitzy a gift may look is utterly immaterial. The question is, are you being used in God's hand for the advancement of his kingdom? Zig Ziglar used to say, you are the only person on earth who can use your ability. So I can exhort you. I can encourage you. I can teach you. I can come alongside of you and try to give you help and advice. But you're the only ones who can use your giftings. And so here's my admonition. Use your gifts, not just in this local body, please do that, but use your gifts for the advancement of God's kingdom 24 hours, seven days a week until every square inch of planet Earth is placed beneath Christ's feet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that we would indeed glory in it and live it out by the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to not grow weary in doing good. Help us not to get discouraged. Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Help us, Father, to be not so high-minded that that, uh, we have to be put down, but help us to willingly, of our own accord, put ourselves down by laying everything we have upon the altar as a burnt offering that is sweet and acceptable in your sight. And Father, may you use this congregation for the advancement of your cause. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.